You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Hello and welcome back to the Drop Step podcast. I'm here joined today with by Nick Agar Johnson, the editor-in-chief of No Ceilings, their staff writer over there. And I'm really happy to have him on. I'm a fan of his work. He also produces the King's Weekly podcast with Ray LaBov. Great listens, great things to uh, sort of sink your teeth into when Nick is involved. So I'm happy that you've come on the podcast today, man. And um, I feel like I've caught you at a good time. The No Ceilings Big Board version four has dropped in the last couple of days. So we've got something hot off the press to talk about. How are you doing today? And uh, how are you doing with this draft class? First of all, thank you for the intro. That's very kind, very generous. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, this is a very interesting draft class to look at for a bunch of different reasons. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I think there's a sort of general consensus opinion about the draft class as a whole being maybe not as strong as others, but... I think that also means there's a lot of fascinating stuff to dig into because there isn't sort of a clear, okay, this is the number one pick. This is the number two pick. You know, there isn't sort of a defined order, which I think leaves a lot of balls up in the air and leads to a lot of very interesting sort of wide variation in terms of what people think about the quality of the top of the draft class. What I like about it is that whenever you have a year like this, I mean, if we look back to 2020, I think there's an odd thing that we're talking about it today. You know, Kevin O'Connor famously says Killian Hayes is his number one prospect for that draft class. You have the chance to look like a complete idiot when there's no Victor Wembanyama to be your number one guy. But you also have the chance to really sort of strike on gold with some big bullshit takes because no one has an idea at the best of times. And when it's um, as level a playing field as it seems to be for 2024, that's where you really sort of make your name in terms of evaluating the draft. So, Nick, I think we'll get straight into it. How does your big board look in comparison to the one that's gone out on no ceilings? 
Mine is pretty similar, um, especially at the top. I mean, I have Alexar number one. We had Alexar number one as a collective. There are a few sort of slight differences between my board and the top of the No Ceilings board. Sort of, I think the most notable one for me anyway is, so Reed Shepard is slightly lower on the consensus board than I have him. Uh, Dalton Necht is slightly higher on the No Ceilings board than I have him. Ron Holland is quite a bit higher on the No Ceilings board than I have him. But mm -hmm. for the most part, it's it's interesting because I think there was sort of similar thought process near the you know top three, top five range, and then a bit more variance once you start getting down. But as we sort of mentioned at the top of the big board, there were 173 names submitted for 60 spots, which I think wow. that in and of itself gives a pretty good indication of just how widely the range is in terms of sort of people's thoughts on what this year's draft class looks like. So I want to start with Alex Saar because as a guy that uh, covers the Kings every week and watches every game, you've been treated some premier big man play, uh, certainly over the last couple of seasons with Domas. And um, I, I think it's really sort of jumped out to me. We sort of speak about the league as being a copycat league. And last year it was, wow, a team is finally doing what the Warriors have been doing all these years. Look at Sacramento. This is fantastic. And then um, I was watching Memphis in either November or December, just before Jar came back. And you had a lot of Bismack Biombo running handoff action on the perimeter. And it's like, wow, in the space of one season, we've gone from, you know, maybe two, three teams with you know, Denver as well, incorporating it into their play to suddenly everyone's really trying to sort of veer away from the pick and roll a little bit, diversify their offensive approach. And you have the likes of Bismack Biombo running handoffs at the top of the key, delay action. And, you know, he's not quite making it look as easy as Domas does. That brings us to Alex Saar. And that brings us to sort of like how we think the league is going to look in the next few years. When you look at Alex Saar as a prospect, do you view him as um, singularly as a five? Do you view him as a four? Do you view him as the guy that is going to be imbued with this responsibility sort of, trying to impersonate what some of the best of the best bigs do in the league on a night-to-night -night basis? So to answer all those questions sort of in a line, in terms of positionally, I view him as not purely a five, but mm -hmm. pretty close. I think it's going to be the kind of thing where, honestly, I see him more similarly to, and this is a very high bar, and I don't think he quite reaches that, but I think he's more along the lines of a Victor Weminyama slash Chet Holmgren archetype in that he's this kind of, you know, he's a seven foot one big man who can switch across the perimeter, who moves very well laterally, who has these incredible shot blocking instincts. And it's the kind of thing where, okay, I don't quite see him, you know, being Domas running handoffs. You know, I don't think that's really his game at this point in his career, but mm -hmm. it's more sort of in terms of the defensive end. And, you know, there's the sort of archetype of the offense with, you know, as you were saying, sort of moving away from pick and roll coverage, more towards handoffs, more towards dynamic offense. And, you know, a lot of what that means on the defensive end is, okay, you know, if you're going to have your center be involved in more option, actions rather, rather than just purely being a drop guy, right? Just, okay, you want to have someone who can, you know, attack the screen, who can, you know, maybe not be someone who you stick on the point of attack guard for very long, right? But someone who at least you can confidently say he's not going to look lost out there. Right. I mean, that's sort of where I'm thinking with Sar. You know, the offensive stuff has work to do. Like the offensive game is not fully developed to the point where, you know, it's interesting. 
there's sort of this conversation about who should be the number one pick and the concept behind people being more out on SAR is much more on the offensive end than de the defensive end. And yeah. for me, the reason that I have him number one on my board is more just because I'm more comfortable with his defense being a game changer than I am with any other prospect in this class and any other skill that they have sort of at the top of the class. So in terms of the running the offense stuff, I think that's further away. I am confident that he can at least be Bismack Biamba level. You know, Domas Savonis <laughs> level is, we'll see, you know, maybe he yeah. gets there at some point. Maybe he never quite get there, gets there. But I think a lot of what you were talking about, about how offenses in the league have so many more options and, you know, there's a lot more sort of spontaneity to it rather than just a setup, you know, okay, set the pick, you know, run off the pin down this way and then we'll get you the ball, you know, on the wing. It's the kind of thing where because offenses are more dynamic, defenses have to be more dynamic as well. And that's, I think, where Star SAR really stands out to me. Absolutely. But it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because if you looked at SAR, let's plonk him back in sort of 2018 in the mm -hmm. league, you could view him being sort of this transformative defender, just defending pick and roll as a guy that allows you to switch on the perimeter as well and, you know, sort of really frustrate all these premier pick and roll ball handlers. But and then sort of on the offensive end, as a guy that's seven foot one, that is athletic, that can switch on the defensive end, I would have had no concerns about once he sort of fills out his ability to um, to attack the lane, be a vers uh, vertical spacer and sort of provide that value on the offensive end. The, the thing that I look at today is if he's potentially a little bit like a four and a half and there might be minutes where you're running two big man lineups, whether that's with a stretch big or sort of your traditional um, NBA center. Do you think he has the ball skills to be competent enough sort of at the four to put it down on the deck and attack a closeout? Or do you have trust in the shot that you could potentially sort of sit him down in the corner? Or do you think he might have to be quite a bit more dynamic off ball and sort of use that athleticism and, try and get his way to the rim, just not as your pick and roll um, diver, if that makes sense. Right. I'm more comfortable with him putting the ball on the deck as a four than I am with him shooting at the moment. I think his shot is one of the bigger question marks that he has at this point, but it's not a complete zero, which I think is a real plus. Like it's something that, you know, he's shown a willingness to take threes. He's, you know, hit them, not at an exactly particularly impressive clip, but, you know, he's not... Like he's not Dylan Mitchell, right? He's at least willing to take those shots, which I think is a huge, you know, huge plus for him in terms of the ability for him to potentially reach the point where that shot is a weapon for him. His handle, I think, is very good for his size, but it's the kind of thing where it's a lot more sort of value above usual positional expectation at center than it is at power forward. And I think that's the kind of thing where it's probably going to be more important for him to sort of fill out and be a five sooner rather than later than it is for someone like Chet Holmgren, who has incredible ball skills and a very well-developed three-point shot, or even Weminyama, who, you know, his three-point shooting was one of the biggest concerns last year. It's continued to be, you know, not exactly spectacular this year, but I mean, Weminyama has, you know, ridiculous ball skills, you know, wing level ball skills to the point that SAR is not going to reach ever. And you know, that's the kind of thing where I think it's more imperative for Saar to be a center sooner rather than later than those other guys because Holmgren and Weminyama provide a lot of additional value that Saar isn't quite ready to provide just yet. 
absolutely and it's really really hard to project sort of shooting long term especially from the center position where the last podcast that went out on this feed was um talking about kentucky guys and we spoke a little bit about uh zvonimir ivisic and how wow you know we've really seen flashes of him sort of getting to the three off the dribble the side steps it all looks really smooth but then you look at guys that projected as complete non-spacers during the draft process suddenly whether it's in year three of their career or year seven they suddenly have a penchant for taking threes or sort of spacing out to the mid-range so I think it's one of the most sort of difficult skills to project so the fact that um you know guys if you haven't already seen no ceilings big board it's very useful especially for talking to Nick about this stuff the fact that he's uh hitting 28.3 percent of his threes and he's already 66.7 percent from the free throw line 66 feels like the watermark for you know you're not going to get hacker shacked whenever you're playing. You're not going to be that much of a liability. Um, I I looked at Sacramento last year, and I think that a lot of things sort of played into their really positive season. Obviously, health was one thing, the synergy in the two-man game between Fox and Sabonis. But one of the other things that we can speak about as well as the pace is the fact that quite often you had five guys on the floor that could attack and sort of create their own shot to varying degrees. This is one of the things with Alex Saar where I sort of look and go, yeah, if he's a five, he's potentially sort of got the ball skills and can sort of get past guys on the perimeter that are fives. But it's when you start to look at him as a four that maybe you think, is the NBA sort of moving away from that? And you're going to have to have sort of at minimum four, four and a half guys that can create their own shot or find some sort of offensive value um, to compete right at the upper echelons of the league. And that's certainly the concern with Sar is whether his offensive game will come around enough to sort of justify the the defensive value that he's going to provide. And I don't know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, I'm not entirely comfortable with the notion of him being a huge player in an offense sooner rather than later. And, you know, that's a real concern for someone that I have number one in the draft. I fully, fully admit that. But I think the flip side of that is, you know, when you're talking about, say, a team like Sacramento, and it's interesting because this year they've had a little bit less of that element of five guys being able to put on the floor and attack the basket. Really, a lot of the sort of going to the rim game has been concentrated into De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk so far this year. But that's a different story than the question about Sar. I think with Sar, it's the kind of situation where, I'm comfortable with him being like a fifth option to start. And then the question becomes, does the skill that he shows, you know, turn into something more than just, all right, you're going to be a bit contributor to the offense and, you know, mostly focus on the defensive end because, you know, especially as you talked about, you know, as the league starts to move into really pushing the pace, you know, really moving the action along offensively, you know, less of a focus on the defensive end, you know, it's worrying to sort of be thinking about a defense first prospect in those terms, right? But mm-hmm. I think the flip side of that is that I'm comfortable with, you know, Sar not as much with the ball in his hands, but as a complimentary guy, right? As a dive guy, as you mentioned. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, if he can work along the rest of his game, you know, sort of slowly ramp his way up to be more of an offensive contributor, then, you know, again, a lot of my sort of evaluation of him is reliant on the defense. And if that's not as special as I'm hoping it is, you know, then that's a bit more questionable having him at the top. But I don't know, there's there's a lot of sort of confusion around this draft class. And, you know, there 
unlike say last year where if you tried to argue for someone else at number one i would have been very confused by your yeah. logic you know i'm much more sort of open to being convinced is not really the right way of putting it because i think it's important in the draft space to always at least be open to listening and you know open to the notion that you might have been wrong about something the first time around but mm -hmm. with sar i think that ultimately if you're picking someone at number one you're looking for someone to transform your franchise and if anyone in this draft is going to transform a franchise i think it's going to be alex sar on the defensive end of the floor and I think it's really important to not reach for the guy that can transform a franchise if he isn't there. You know, if mm. you don't have Nikola Topic as high in your evaluation as you did sort of Scoot Henderson last year or Kay Cunningham when he was coming into the draft, Lamelo, Anthony Edwards, then don't pick him sort of going, well, he's our number one pick. So we're expecting him to do that for the franchise anyway. There are three ways that teams can add talent in the league. They can do it via free agency, via trade or via the draft. And I think a lot of the conversation around a team like San Antonio, for example, who clearly has their number one guy for the franchise, but doesn't necessarily have their number one, maybe even offensive option. It sort of depends what Vic does over the next couple of years. Uh, you know, don't go out there and put it, put the burden on someone just because you've got that pick in the draft. I think fans have got to be realistic about this year's class. Yeah, and this is actually, interestingly, something that I just talked about yesterday with Albert Gim on the uh, No Ceilings Deep Dives podcast of mm -hmm. there's only so many players in the league who you can trust to be the primary initiator for your offense. And, you know, there's, on the one hand, there's guys like Cam Thomas who, okay, you can put the ball in the basket at an incredibly high level, but yeah. are you doing all that much else? Um, you're certainly not contributing on the defensive end. Are you doing enough in terms of, your passing in terms of your playmaking to open up the rest of the offense for your teammates. And it's the kind of thing where there are a lot of players who get sort of the expectations of the franchise heaped on their shoulders. And that's why, you know, I think bringing up Topic is a very relevant point here because if people assume that, you know, Oh, we took you with the fourth overall pick. So you're going to have to be the alpha and the omega for our offense right? That's not going to work for the vast majority of players in any draft class, but particularly in this draft class where there isn't really the sort of, okay, this is, this is our franchise cornerstone. We can gladly sort of heap that kind of offensive expectation on someone. And I think that's maybe part of why I'm higher on SAR than I am on Topic is because there's sort of the notion of, you know, can Topic really transform an offense in the positive sense? And you know, again, going back to the well here, I'm just more comfortable with the notion of SAR transforming a defense than I am with any guys at the top transforming the offense because each of these teams, you know, again, there's only going to be a couple of guys who you're really going to task with running the offense on a possession-by-possession possession basis. And, yep. you know, if you could maybe be that guy off the bench, sure, but that's not what teams are expecting. And, I think more to the point, that's not what fans are expecting when someone ends up going, you know, in the top five of any given draft. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I want to move the conversation on a little bit to size, because I think that's another one of the sort of evolutions that we've seen over the past five years. Obviously, the Warriors come onto the scene in sort of 2013, 14, 15, etc. And 
suddenly everyone's looking for the next Draymond Green. Centers aren't going to be any taller than six foot seven. They're going to be these big bulky guys that can switch out onto the perimeter. I think what people didn't account for is there are going to be seven foot guys that can switch out onto the perimeter as well. Sacramento is one of the teams that I look at on the league and I think that they're phenomenal fun to watch and they've got some players that I really adore watching. You mentioned Malik Monk earlier in terms of rim pressure. I love Malik Monk. I, I want the T-shirt if there is one. I think that, um, you know, dependent on what happens in free agency next year, I think if he was given a little bit more of a primary role, he's someone that could potentially get to sort of fringe all-star territory with the usage. But Sacramento is a really small team. And I think across the season, when I've watched them, particularly in the um, in the Pelicans game, in the in-season tournament, where you sort of saw Brandon Ingram have one of the games of his life because he's this big six-for-eight wing that could sort of just go, I'm going to pick on you today, I'm going to pick on you today. How important do you think adding size is going to be over the next few years? One, for Sacramento, and two, sort of across the league. Are we going to see smaller guys squeezed out a little bit? Sure. So in terms of, I'm actually going to go with across the league first, if that's okay. I think that there's sort of a squeezing out of size. Um, I think that's more honestly at the guard slots than it is up front. I think there's a lot of, you know, the concept that if you're a six, you know, six, two or smaller guard, you have to be spectacular to stick around in any capacity in the league anymore. And I think, that's sort of an evolution of the trend that you mentioned with the Warriors, where there was this concept for a while. And I think Toronto was actually the team that sort of most popularized it, most sort of put this as a headline thing of Project 6-9, right? Of, yeah. okay, we yeah. want everybody to be the same size. We want everybody to be able to switch across positions. And, you know, I think the the element of that that works is that if you can get, you know, rather than they're sort of the cliche of positionless basketball, right? But I think it's more along the lines of if you can get someone to fill all the roles that you need filled, then it doesn't necessarily matter what quote-unquote position they play. And the go-tos for me on this front are Bruce Brown and Gary Payton II, who are guys who multiple times have basically been fives on offense and twos or threes on defense, right? Where it's like, Gary Payton is your role mid. Gary Payton is your alley-oop threat. Like, that's the kind of thing that even five years ago would not have been a thing that worked at all. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where if you want to run a four-out offense, great. You have one in. Usually that's going to be your center, but it doesn't have to be, right? And so I think in terms of across the league, that's the kind of thing where, you know, if you're – I think it's less that you're going to have six, seven centers. I think that's less of a thing. But if you're six, 10, right, that used to be the kind of thing where you'd be, you know, sort of a tweener between power forward and center. And now it's the kind of thing where, you know, six, 10 guys are anywhere from like Paul George to Demonis Sabonis, right? You know, you have basically the gamut of if you're six, 10, but move really fluidly and have great ball skills and can shoot you're probably going to play on the wing and teams are going to be like, wow, we have this massive height advantage at the three because we're running a six ten guy out as our small forward. You know, the flip side is, okay, you know, you have a guy who's six ten but 260 and doesn't have a three-point shot but absolutely destroys people on the glass and, you know, is decent enough at handoff sets, then you run him at center, right? And so I think that's the kind of thing where size is getting squeezed out of the league at the smaller spots, but... Once you get past sort of the six four six five range, 
it's really become a lot more about, okay, where's your skill set fit, right? And for, you know, Gary Payton II, for Bruce Brown, it's the kind of thing where, all right, and, you know, Bruce, Bruce Brown, credit to him, has come a long way with his shot. But the concept there being, okay, you know, if you're someone who's at his best as, you know, someone who's attacking the basket, whether that be off-ball cutting, whether that be, you know, actively with the ball in your hands, that's probably more of a big type of role. So rather than, you know, sort of the hard and fast positional designations, it's more, okay, what can you do and how does that fit with the team? With the Kings specifically, I have been pushing for the last couple of years for the Kings to get a backup center who can run handoff sets. That's been something that I've been pushing for for quite a while. I've written for two years straight now about how I think Deron Holmes is basically perfect for that role that any of those teams, you know, like, the Kings, the Nuggets, who have a the Heat as well, who have an offense where they run a lot of action through their center, he's the perfect guy to be your third big because he can play with the starting center. You know, he's spent time at the four and been effective there, but he's also, you know, with his incredible leaping ability, his shot blocking instincts, and also his ability to read the four as a passer and playmaker. You plug him in and, you know, for 15 minutes a game that Demonis Sabonis is sitting, you don't have to completely change the offense because you have someone who can do 80% of what he does, you know, as the backup center. So for the Kings specifically, I think it's not as much about the size as it is the size in the right manner. I mean, I was very happy when the Kings signed JaVale McGee this offseason because I thought he was someone who could be very helpful in terms of the defense. And you know, JaVale McGee has been very up and down this season, but when he's been good, he's been really good and huge for the Kings. He's, I mean, he's arguably won them a couple games, like basically just by coming in and being dominant for eight minutes before he goes back to sit down, but you're not running the offense through JaVale McGee, right? Like that sort of concept is not something that he does particularly well. So I think for the league as a whole, you know, again, there's a sort of squeezing out of smaller players on the positional spectrum but not necessarily a sort of renewed emphasis on you have to have a seven footer in there it's more do you have someone who's at least close to center size who can do the center things that your offense needs and you know the philadelphia 76ers need different things from their centers offensively than the sacramento kings right and so you might be looking at a different set of players but the ultimate idea is that yeah you know there's sort of a squeezing out at the smaller spots, but I think the bigger slots, as long as you can do what a team needs you to do, it's less important that you're six foot 10 as opposed to seven foot one. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of view it as sort of, it's kind of crude, but hit points on a video game. You know, if you look at like a, you know, top trumps or a Pokemon stats or something along those lines, as long as your starting five is getting to, you know, the rebounding threshold, the three point shooting threshold, the, um rim pressure threshold etc doesn't matter if that's coming from your one two three four or five you're doing it at the end of the day and i actually have mike uh prader who's a senior uh senior editor at the athletic on to talk about his book and um he spoke about sort of the we believe warriors being one of the pioneers of that where if you look at it they had all of the requisite skills to really sort of be a traditional basketball team it's just Stephen Jackson was six for eight and playing the two and he added it in, you know, different places. But I think it's interesting that you touch on sort of not necessarily size for Sacramento, but more continuity. 
And it's one of these issues with finding a guy that's really skilled at the five. It's what the hell do we do when he actually has to sit? And I think it's even more of an issue when you're talking about a Denver or a Philadelphia where their role is so absolute. But continuity is a really interesting thing. Do you think that over the next few years or perhaps even in you know the college ranks now, are we seeing more of these handoff bigs emerge? Is Dayron Holmes sort of unique in that respect? Or do you think that it's a trend of player that we've seen more and more over the last couple of years? It's a good question. My general philosophy on this is that there's a bit of a lag in that once the NBA decides that there's an archetype that they like, it usually takes about three or four years for those players to start bubbling up in the college ranks because essentially, you know, and again, this is a very vague, very broad sort of overview of it, but the essential general idea is, you know, a Draymond Green type comes into the league and starts getting minutes and starts being effective in the ways that he is effective, which hadn't really been seen in the NBA before to the extent that he was doing them. Right. And so it's the kind of thing where, you know, okay, so that's something that pops up. And then, you know, three or four years down the line, you start seeing, okay, these are the kind of players who are, you know, similar in skill, like attempted attempted copycats, as it were. I mean, nobody really got close to Draymond. I'm, I think maybe the closest you could argue that anyone has gotten is Bam Adebayo, but he's a very different player in his own way. But, yeah. you know, that being the sort of concept where it's the kind of thing where, okay, the NBA decides, wow, you know, this big man shooting thing, you know, like Sam Perkins, I guess, did it back in, you know, the in the 90s, but it wasn't like a part of the league, right? And then Dirk becomes Dirk. And all of a sudden, you know, there starts being this emphasis on, wow, okay, you know, this six foot 10 European big man who can shoot, let's bring him in, right? And that's where you get, you know, Nicholas uh, Shkidisvili and a whole bunch of guys who didn't exactly succeed in the league. But the idea being, there tends to be this sort of notion where there's a proof of concept at the NBA level. And then it's, you know, more along the lines of, you know, teenagers start watching these guys. I mean, you know, Joel Embiid has, you know, multiple times talked about how much of his game he picked up from watching YouTube videos when he was learning how to play basketball. But the idea being that once they're in the NBA, there's a bit of a lag where, okay, this guy's established himself as an archetype that works. And then you see, you know, the six, seven high school center who never had the ball in his hands, because why would he have the ball in his hands? Just give it to him in the post. Right. And it's like, no, yeah. actually there's value to having your best player bringing the ball up all the time, even if they're quote unquote, a center. And that's when you start seeing the proliferation of, okay, you know, six, eight wings who can handle the ball and shoot because, you know, five years ago, they would have just been pigeonholed at center because they were the biggest guy on the team. And so that's where I think, you know, there are, I mean, Deron Holmes is, I think, the best example in this class. Honestly, interestingly enough, a lot of the other big men in this class, besides um, Deron Holmes, uh, Kalal Ware, and Alex Sar, a lot of them are actually more traditional big men than you would have thought, right? Like Zach Eady, obviously, being the prime example, but, you know, sure. Donovan Klingon as well, much more of a traditional center type. Adem Bona is, you know, a bit undersized for your quote unquote traditional center, but you know, he's a, you know, pick and roll, roll man, defensive specialist kind of center as well. So it's the kind of thing where in this year's class, there isn't really as much of that sort of handoff archetype as, you know, you might like, but 
I think it's the kind of thing that will start proliferating into the NBA once there's been a few years for that to sort of be established as, okay, this is what the NBA is looking for. So therefore some college programs will start to shift their schemes to match what the NBA is looking for. And therefore some high school teams will start trying those players, you know, out in new ways to sort of fit. All right. This is the direction that basketball is going. Yeah. And I think sometimes at the start of a draft class, it sort of projects to look a little bit more that way, because I think at the start of the year, you know, Itzan Almansa, who's with the G League Ignite this year, almost projected to be that handoff guy or someone that could definitely add something with the passing. I think that a lot of people looked at Ade Mara and thought you could run action through him in the post. And sometimes these guys don't work out, but then you have your Oso Igadaros picking up, uh, you know, flying up draft boards and then suddenly they balance it out a little bit. So just because we don't see it necessarily in 2024, who knows? We could have 10 centers for 2025. I don't know how in advance you do your homework, Nick, but you know maybe 2025, like I said, we're going to see 10 of these guys that can come into the league. I think it's really interesting because it's always just, it's about dissemination of information at the end of the day. And with how global the league is and with how easy it is to access it's not just going to be sort of Joel Embiid watching YouTube highlights. It's going to be every future prospect that comes into the league that's sort of doing this thing. And really, who's going to stand out at the end of the day? Is it going to be Jonas Valanciunas really hitting the glass or Steven Adams? Or is it going to be Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, Domas, uh, Alperin Sengun, etc.? Certainly at the big man position. So it's... It's a copycat league to the extent where it's like, oh, this thing is in trend. We'll try it. But also it shapes the next generation of basketball players that we're going to see. So I think towards the back end of the 2020s, the league is going to look entirely different to how it looks now, which sort of brings us back to 2024, because that's something that I always like to sort of think about when I'm thinking about the draft. You know, is this guy going to be good just for the next couple of years or is he almost league future-proof, if that makes sense? And I think one guy that projects to be league future-proof is Cody Williams, because he just seems to be able to do a little bit of everything. He fits in the, with this sort of 6'8 wing archetype that we've spoken about as well. Nick, what are your thoughts on Cody? He's um, He's been another guy that's sort of flown up the draft rankings this season. I'm a big fan of his. Uh, I've had him, I'm pretty sure I've had him in my top, seven all season he might have dropped to eight at one point but right now i have him at three and i think the thing with cody williams is that it's it's not just that he's league future proof as much as it is for me that it's hard to imagine a context where he doesn't fit right like with someone like alex art you know again i have him top of my board but there's gonna have to be some offensive limitations that you work around right with cody williams you know Maybe he doesn't have the game-changing defensive potential that I think that Alex Sar does, but you know anybody who's a tertiary playmaker who can score a bit, who contributes value on defense, I'm a little bit... The reason I have him at three rather than higher is I'm a little bit shakier on his defense than some at no ceilings. Just I'm worried about his fight around screens. I think he does a very poor job navigating screens, but that's something that, you know... <laughs> is very easy for an 18 year old to grow out of. And, you know, a lot of that is just frame. You know, if you're giving up 30 pounds on a guy, it's a lot harder to fight around a screen than if you're not right. But I think with Cody Williams, yeah, the concept of him is look, is there a situation that couldn't use someone with his skill set? And 
it's hard to find one. And, you know, I think that's a lot of why Tyler Rucker in No Ceilings has Cody Williams number one is the concept of, look, if you're a team that's picking at number one and you just need to improve the squad, right? That in this year's draft, you're probably not, almost certainly not going to get a superstar type, even if you're picking a number one. So why don't you at least get a guy who's got a very safe floor and who isn't going to make trouble for the other players on your team, right? Like if, as Cody Williams has shown, you know, a lot of the complaints about him earlier in the season was how passive he was, right? It's like, he's not someone who's going to be demanding the ball from the other players on your team. He's going to fit in. He's going to play very solid basketball. He's going to be incredibly efficient on the offensive end. And he's going to provide some value defensively. How much is up in the air? Pretty much all rookies are bad defensively. So it's probably going to be a year three thing for him defensively anyway. But you know, I very much like the idea of him as someone who, if you're not sure what to do, he's going to make sense pretty much everywhere. Yes. Yeah. You know, you can imagine Detroit getting the number one pick or even San Antonio, for example. And a lot of people are sort of clowning guys on draft Twitter saying, you had Alex Saar number one. Look at this. He's not going to go number one anymore. You're absolutely right. It's very much sort of situation dependent this year. I think it's interesting that you touched on passivity and number one picks have always sort of projected to be ball dominant players, whether they're parked in the post or they're operating on the perimeter. I think there's an argument that with the level of talent in the league at the moment, and with the fact that there are teams that genuinely can put five ball handlers out there on the floor, there's more value than ever in having a guy that almost knows how to be a role player first and can almost blossom into that role a little bit later on in his career. You know, Jalen Williams, it's the lazy comparison, but he's someone that absolutely for his first few months in OKC did all the right things off the ball, was incredibly low usage, incredibly high efficiency. But we've sort of seen him blossom so far in year two to being a 20 point per game scorer, carrying second units when Shea goes and sits. Is that something that you look for in the draft process? Sort of a guy that has seen a lot of different basketball situations or would you not worry about it so much if it just came to sort of talent versus talent? That's a, the talent versus talent thing does throw a wrench in it. But my general concept is it is very, very important for my evaluation to Mm -hmm. look at guys who have been willing to willing and able to fit into non-starring roles. I mean, it's sort of asinine to say it, but I think it's important to say anyway, basically every single NBA player was the best player on their high school team. Like, unless you went to Montverde, right? Like pretty much every time, like, or maybe if you went to Oak Hill, right? You're going to have been the best player on your high school team. Vast majority of these guys were the best player on their college team or on their, you know, U18 team. If they're an international guy, you know, the idea being most of these guys, you know, have never had to adjust to not having the ball in their hands all the time. And so if you're someone who's shown a, willingness and an ability to fit into a sort of smaller role and do that role, you know, up to the max of your ability. You know, I mentioned it earlier, but I think that's part of why I have Reed Shepard as high as I do is the notion that, look, if you're worried about someone coming in and fitting into your offense, right? Like Reed Shepard has a lower usage rate than Justin Edwards. And, you know, Justin Edwards is someone who everybody at No Ceilings, including myself, has to take a mea culpa on because we had him at number one on our board heading into the season. And, that hasn't exactly worked out, but yeah. you know, the idea being, look, if you've already shown a willingness and an ability to fit into a role at the college level, 
it's a lot easier for me to project you continuing to do that at the NBA level. Whereas, and I lean on this comparison a lot just because it's the one that, you know, always comes to mind first when I think of this. Jimmer Fredette was the number 10 pick in his draft year. And mm-hmm. if he had been willing to be an off-ball floor spacing player, he could have been J.J. Redick with much worse defense, right? Like, I think that's a career that very easily could have played out for Jimmer Fredette. And instead, he was like, no, I can't operate without the ball in my hands all the time. And he found a league and a level where it made sense for him to do that. It made sense for him to be this ball-dominant guy. And, you know, now he is essentially living out the Stefan Marbury experience in China, which, you know, and I say that, you know, without any sort of, you know, spite or the spice that's the wrong word as well, but you know, any sort of negative claim, it's like, look, that's his game. And he found the level where that worked, but maybe if he'd been in a world where rather than being the only guy at BYU, he'd been, you know, the Reed Shepard type for Kentucky, maybe he does end up being a decade long role player in the NBA because he got used to the concept of, all right, I'm not going to have the ball in my hands all the time. What can I do? And, you know, there was a, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this because I'm paraphrasing an interview that I saw a long time ago, but basically Steve Kerr talking about how he would train, you know, essentially along lines of he'd jump off a bench, run around, take two shots, run back and sit down because (laughs) that's what he'd be doing when he was on the NBA floor. Right. And, you know, it sounds kind of kitschy, but it's something that made a lot of sense in that, all right, this is the role that I'm going to be filling rather than just putting up a thousand shots because that's what I did every day when I was the star at Arizona, I'm going to try and tailor my workout to what is going to be best for me to fill the role that I'm going to fill. And so, you know, when you hear something like that, when you see what Reed Shepard is doing at Kentucky, it's very easy to sort of think, all right, you know, this is someone who rather than be having to worry about them fitting into an NBA context, I don't need to worry about that because they've already done it at the college level. They've already done it, you know, at the international level, wherever they might've been. Yeah. Richard Jefferson had a fantastic bit about that on JJ Reddick's podcast a couple of years ago, but it's always stuck with me. It's um, when he got to San Antonio, having Chip England there as his shock doctor, a lot of the stuff that he sort of taught him about wasn't necessarily, oh, your mechanics are wrong, your elbows in the wrong place, etc. It's more being ready to get the ball um, with one second left on the shot clock as opposed to being able to get into your rhythm, get into your flow, a jab step here, a crossover there, and then suddenly you're pulling up from 18 feet. I think a lot of the time as fans and sort of amateur analysts, certainly in my case, I used to underestimate the sort of mental level and how um, sort of looks are very different dependent on how you're getting them. There's a reason why James Harden to this day still struggles to take a catch and shoot three and has to resist the urge to, you know, do a little sidestep here or, you know, try and cuttlefish's guy into sleeper off the dribble. Um, I, I want to come back to Reed Shepard because I think that he's, he's an interesting name to bring up considering what you said about size a little bit earlier on in the podcast I think it's a really important rule. If I were a GM, I would probably have tenets that I draft by, but it's also really important to break them once in a while. You said that um, the Toronto Raptors probably led the 6-9 revolution. Billy Knight tried it in Atlanta 15 years before, and he passed on Chris Paul and Deron Williams because he refused to draft anyone um, below the height of 6-8. Is Reed Shepard just a guy that projects to be so good that you don't mind him being a small guard? So the short answer is yes. 
The long answer is I think the most important factor in being an undersized guard and making it work is you have to be exceptional defensively. And Reed Shepard has some of the quickest hands I've ever evaluated. His Mm -hmm. steals rate is insane. And as I have said ad nauseum on, on the deep dives podcast, that's something that translates at an incredibly high level. But when you're looking at steals rates, it has to be, okay, is he getting all these steals because he's gambling on every possession and eight out of 10 times it's an easy layup and two out of 10 times it's a steal. And that's not Reed Shepard's game at all. So for me, a lot of it is, you know, first of all, the example that you mentioned with Chris Paul and Darren Williams, it's like, in that case, you're missing the forest for the trees pretty clearly. It's like, okay, I refuse to draft anybody under six, eight. It's like, yeah, but that was a hall of famer and a guy who probably would have been a hall of famer without really bad injury problems. So you know, maybe that's not a good look for you, but I think a lot of the pushing out smaller players from the league has been because, you know, people can shoot over them. And it's the kind of thing where you have to be able to make up for that if that's a limitation that you have. And, you know, I'm also quite high on Rob Dillingham, but I'm not anywhere near as high on him as I am on Reed Shepard. And a lot of that is because I'm much more worried about Rob Dillingham's defense than I am about Reed Shepard's. And, that's a huge factor for me when you're talking about guys who are under that six, three line is like, okay, that's, you know, that's sort of a issue to start. Right. But the question is, what can you do to overcome that issue? And for Reed, I think his defense, you know, makes up for his size disadvantage to the point where I think he's going to be a plus defensively, which is very rare when I'm evaluating, you know, six, three and under guards. This is block rate as well. I mean, the just the sheer stock numbers are incredible. Yeah. I had um, I had Bryce Simon and Dylan Huntsinger on last week to talk about Kentucky. So I watched the Florida game in preparation, and obviously that was maybe one of the least Reed Shepherd games of the season because of the amount of usage that he got through, and that was a topic of conversation. It's the wow! It's like in this first stage of the year, he's shown that he can do the role player stuff. Do you think he even projects to? have a slightly more significant role on ball is he this year's Tyrese Halliburton you know not doing sort of apples to oranges but in terms of this guy that's been low usage but sort of processes the game at such a high level that he could potentially walk into a higher usage role at the NBA it's funny because before you said the name I was going to bring up Tyrese Halliburton is here's the previous guy who had these ridiculous steel block numbers who people were somewhat worried about his usage rate, but boy, did it translate now with Tyrese Tyrese is, I think a different conversation and it's also a different conversation because I am extraordinarily biased in favor of Tyrese Halliburton. And I refuse to apologize for that whatsoever. But yeah, I think that Tyrese was just a truly preternatural special playmaker in a way that, you get those kind of guys like once every three years. And I don't think Reed Shepard is on that level as a playmaker, as a reader of the floor. There's, you know, again, an asinine point, but Tyrese Halliburton has three inches on Reed Shepard, which I think is a huge help. The flip side of that is that there was a lot of concern about Tyrese Halliburton being a movement shooter because of his shooting motion. And that was something he erased pretty quickly, but that's not a concern that Reed Shepard's even going to have coming into the league. Now, my thought on this is that, I do not rule out the possibility of Reed Shepard playing up at all. Like I don't rule out the possibility of him eventually being a primary initiator on ball guy, you know, maybe even potential all-star ceiling. But I think the idea is that that's more of a 
sort of 95th percentile outcome, whereas for Halliburton, I might've thought of it as more like an 85th, 90th percentile outcome. And I think the biggest driver of that is just that Reed Shepard is a very capable, very good heads up passer, but he's not a highlight real, you know, special kind of passer in the way that Tyrese Halliburton is. And I think that's a huge factor in terms of how good he would be in theory on the ball. You know, I think the other side of that is also, you know, again, the height thing. It's not the biggest thing in the world, but it is worth mentioning. That being said, I mean, Tyrese was a lot more along the lines of, you know, getting good steals and block rates by gambling than Shepard was. I'm much more comfortable in Shepard as sort of a straight up defender than Halliburton. And Halliburton, it's funny because he showed real flashes of being a solid on-ball defender in the making in Sacramento. And then he got traded to Indiana and his offensive responsibility tripled and the defense took a massive step back. I think that Reed Shepard is someone who, you know, maybe doesn't have quite the same sort of offensive ceiling as Halliburton, but he's someone who you're going to get contributions on both ends of the floor rather than, okay, his offense is so overwhelming that we can live with his defense. Yeah, the name for me is Derek White with Reed Shepard mm-hmm. in terms of the archetype that if everything goes right, he sort of projects to be. I, I was so impressed during that Florida game just that the um, the passing up the good shot for the great shot, and I think that I saw that in a lot of Rob Dillingham tape as well. Those sort of kickouts on the perimeter where you look and you think, right, Reed could maybe drive here or he could pull up for a catch-and-shoot three. No, he's swinging the ball across because Rob will have... 0.2 seconds more than he does at the moment to go and attack the advantage, which I think is going to be so key at the NBA level. You look at all these really high functioning teams and people speak about Nikola Jokic as if he's sort of like holding session in Denver and sort of teaching guys to look for the extra pass. And I'm sure that, you know, like philosophy maybe rubs off a little bit, but Aaron Gordon's a guy that's got great kinetic passing feel. I think that KCP is underrated in that respect. They all kind of have to be for Michael Porter Jr. to be in there as well, Mr. I Won't Swing the Rock. But um, I, I I can't wait to watch Reed at the NBA level. So is he number two on your board, on your personal board, Nick? He's number five on my personal board. Um, I have actually Zachary Rissaché is number two on my board. So but... tell me a little bit about Rissaché because I've had Bryce speak to me about, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for Zach, I'm not going to butcher it. Um, Fair enough. He he looks to me like the pick that if he were entering free agency today, sort of five years down the line, he'd be getting paid a hell of a lot of money. What is it that you really like about his game? How future-proof does he look? He is extremely future-proof to me. I mean, a 6'10 wing who can really shoot off movement, that, that's going to play everywhere. And yeah. for me, that's really the driving force behind why I have Risha Shea at number two is sort of similar to why I have Cody Williams at number three, but with a lot more of an emphasis on, I really buy into Risa Shea's shot being a weapon. I mean, that's the kind of thing where, you know, he was at 47% from three point range at one point. Do I think he's that level of shooter? No, I think pretty much nobody is that level of shooter, but you know, when you have the size that he does and the mobility that he does, I mean, you know, his, his handle is decent for a guard, but really solid for a six ten guy. And, Risa Shea is the kind of player who, you know, plays into sort of what I was talking about earlier of Paul George, right? Of if you can run a 6'10 guy out there at the two, then, you know, that's a massive advantage for you on both ends, right? Because he's got the size to envelop him. And I definitely buy into Risa Shea's defense as well. You know, not not sort of game-changingly, but I think that he'll be 
well above average on the defensive end sooner rather than later. And when you combine that with his shooting touch, I think that he's someone who, again, you know, maybe he doesn't project as a superstar guy, but every team could use him as a fourth option. And I think he has the kind of game where he could scale up to being a third option or maybe even a second option. I don't think he's ever going to be like the leading scorer for a team, but when you combine his shooting touch with his size, he's shown a lot more in terms of getting downhill and getting to the basket in the last couple months than he had sort of earlier in the cycle slash earlier in his, you know, prospect evaluation process. But I really buy into his shooting and at his size, you know, combined with flashes of playmaking flashes of real defensive potential He's mm-hmm. someone who I think has any, you know, one of the higher floors in the class and also a decently high ceiling if he can put a little bit more together in terms of his on ball game. Yeah. I, I think sometimes like a good catch all proxy for who should be the number one pick in the draft is who's gonna make their teammates' lives the easiest. And there's the there's the Luca prototype where it's oh great I can literally stand in the corner or you know I'll go and catch five alley oops a game because this guy's doing everything on ball he's a maestro he's a wizard etc but sometimes it's just about not taking stuff off the table and I think I've seen a real reoccurring theme in your evaluation Nick in in Cody in Risa Shea in Reed Shepard as well of guys that you just love to play with because they're not going to make your lives difficult whatsoever yeah no 100% and you know that's Also, you know, in a way, it's funny because he does have a little bit more of a quote unquote taking things off the table argument. But a huge part of the reason that I have Sar at number one is because I think he will make everybody's life easier on the defensive end. And, you know, that's a little bit more nebulous than, okay, this guy's a 40% three point shooter who, you know, can attack the basket when he needs to, can make the right pass. You know, that's sort of easier to envision. But no, absolutely. The concept of, you know, especially in a class that doesn't necessarily, well, not necessarily doesn't have a Luke archetype of, okay, they're going to do everything. The idea of they can make everybody else's life easier by just being a very easy, obvious outlet option. Right. And that I think applies to Risha say that applies to Williams that applies to Reed Shepard of, oh, there's five seconds left on the shot clock. If I swing the ball to him, he's going to make a good decision one way or another, yeah. right? And that's the kind of thing where, you know, it's not just that it makes everybody else's life easier, but something that I also talk about all the time is avenues to playing time, right? Of if you're a young prospect, how do you get the developmental minutes that you need? How do you convince the coach to put you on the floor to get those opportunities? And the less you take off the table, the easier it is for a coach to say, all right, I'm going to throw you out there, right? Like if I'm not worried as a coach about Reed Shepard getting picked on defensively, if I'm not worried as a coach about Reese Shea being able to do something when the ball swings to him and he's wide open, then it's a lot easier to justify putting you on the floor than, all right, this guy has obvious strengths and obvious weaknesses. And if I'm going to put him out there, the other four guys need to be able to account for that. It's a lot easier if it's just I'm one of the four that you don't need to account for rather than the fifth guy that you need to plan around. Who's your strengths and weaknesses guy that's highest up on your board at the moment? So who isn't necessarily making lives easier will need a little bit of accommodation in terms of the system or the lineups that are out there, but there's something in the player profile or the talent that you just can't ignore. Dylan Mitchell. So I have him in my first round, which I think is a lot higher than most people. And Mm -hmm. He is very interesting in that he has extraordinarily strong strengths and debilitating weaknesses. He has 
no shot. And when I say no shot, I mean no shot. Like you watch him. I <laughs> I watched the few three-pointers that he'd taken all year when I wrote about Dylan Mitchell previously. And right. his shot is hideous and it does not look like it's going to be repaired anytime soon. And the fact that he's improved his free throw shooting dramatically to 61% because it was at 40% last season. You know, that's yeah. very telling. The flip side for me is this is one of the best athletes in college basketball. He's got size at six, eight. He's an incredible rebounder, which makes it far easier to project him as the one in guy. You know, if I'm talking about the Bruce Brown lineup concept, having a guy at six, eight fill that role is a lot easier to plan around than having a guy at six, five or with Gary Payton, the second at six, three filling that role. Yeah. So for me, I think, you know, Dylan Mitchell's also shown a lot more passing this year than he had last year, which I think is a huge part of the evaluation for him. His ability, you know, combining his rebounding with his improved playmaking feel, his ability to just grab the ball and go get out in transition where he's incredible. That makes it a lot easier for me to envision him fitting in an NBA context. And so with Dylan Mitchell, the idea is, look, if he goes to a team that doesn't have shooting, it's not going to work. The flip side is if he goes to a team that has shooting and he can just focus on doing what he does best, he's someone who can be an incredible contributor as like a shot blocking four on one end, you know, rim running, cutting, dunking, finishing guy on the other end. And there are a lot of teams that could use someone like him, but they need to have the right construction around him because if he gets in a lineup with another non-shooter, it's going to be disastrous. And they're basically going to be playing five on three on offense, which negates the value of having him out there in the first place. So, you know, very sort of clearly defined game, very clearly defined strength, extremely clearly defined weakness. But I think that he's someone who ultimately, when I'm looking at what he can do rather than what he can't do, I think there's more than enough that he can do to make him a valuable bet, even if, you know, the biggest hole and the biggest sort of problem for any modern NBA non-center is being a non-shooter. And he is very much a non-shooter. I think he makes mm -hmm. up for it elsewhere, but it's the kind of thing where he has to make up for it elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this archetype of player, I'm not saying Dylan Mitchell in particular, is that a guy that could come into Sacramento and play next to Sabonis and improve the prospects of this team? Because I think that despite sort of the pace that Sacramento play at and, you know, you look at these live wire guards that they've got and uh, running on makes, etc. One of the things that I think the team maybe lacks, particularly once you get away from De'Aaron Fox is sort of top line athleticism. Could it's, it's a weird balance because I think that, um, you know, the spacing is so vital to making the Sabonis Fox two man game work and sort of like getting the best out of that. What would your, next move being sort of Monty McNair's shoes in terms of an archetype to come in and help maybe improve the starting lineup as opposed to the bench lineup with a guy like Dayron Holmes or Kelly Olynyk is a guy that I often sort of like project to every team in the league. He's been traded to Toronto today, but he's another one of those guys that you know, makes your lives easier. What is it that you think Sacramento might have to target to go from playoff team to contender over the next couple of years? So it's interesting. I think in terms of the starting lineup, I think longer term, the team is looking for someone to replace Harrison Barnes in the shorter term. I think the bench is a lot more of a problem for the Kings in the starting lineup. I mean, the starting lineup last year in particular, like they 
led the league in a whole bunch of net rating metrics. They were, you know, one of the best, if not the best starting lineups in the league. And that's taken a bit of a tail off this year, just mostly because Harrison Barnes is having a down year compared to the rest of his career. Now, in terms of Dylan Mitchell, I think, I mean, I have pushed for him to be taken by the Kings in no ceilings mock drafts before. And a lot of the reason for that is, Dylan Mitchell fills some very important holes for the team without necessarily being too much of a problem in other areas. And, you know, the main thing is outside of Demonis Sabonis absolutely vacuuming up the glass, the Kings really struggle with rebounding. And, you know, you mentioned the Pelicans earlier. They're a team that has beaten the Kings, you know, pretty handily. I mean, they, the Pelicans have had the Kings number all season. Like they had a brutal game. You know, you mentioned the in-season tournament game. They had one game where they were, the Kings were down 50 to the Pelicans and they made it slightly more respectable by the end, but it was still a 33 point, absolutely brutal beat down blowout loss. And so for Dylan Mitchell, I think he helps with the athleticism, as you mentioned. I mean, again, outside of De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk, the team really doesn't have any top tier, top shelf athletes. And Dylan Mitchell would change that immediately. He would help out with the rebounding. And in terms of the sort of lineup construction stuff, I think that, if you have him in the Harrison Barnes slot, because you have shooters in the rest of the starting lineup, I think that works. I think there's also the element of you could very easily run Dylan Mitchell as the four in a Trey Lyles small ball unit. And that I think works very well because Trey Lyles provides, you know, more active shooting. I mean, Demonis Sabonis, if you just look at the, you know, stat sheet, you see he's shooting 43% from three, but He's taking one a game, right? He's not really spacing the floor. It's just when he's left completely abandoned at the three-point line, he'll occasionally pull up and take it. Trey Lyles is much more of an active three-point shooter than that. I mean, he's shooting 41% on four attempts per game, right? So that's the kind of thing where if you run out Dylan Mitchell as a small four in a Trey Lyles lineup, that works incredibly well. And he helps out on the glass where Trey Lyles hasn't exactly been spectacular throughout his career So for the Sacramento-specific fit, I think there are a lot of lineups where Dylan Mitchell would work. That being Mm -hmm. said, I think there's the flip side of the fact that Sabonis is mostly a non-willing shooter means that you have to play around with it more. And it's a situation where putting Dylan Mitchell into that lineup means you kind of have three and a half shooters, maybe. So it's slightly more awkward. But I think there are lineup constructions that really work for him with the Kings. But... I think he would work even better someplace like Denver where, you know, they have a bit more shooting around Jokic, right? If you run him out with Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., KCP, Nikola Jokic, he's the non-shooter. He's the dive guy. He fulfills a lot of the roles and responsibilities that Bruce Brown filled for them last year, you know, in a slightly bigger package with, I mean, Bruce Brown is a very, very, very good athlete, but Dylan Mitchell is elite of the elite. And that's, you know, another step forward up from a Bruce Brown archetype. Combine that with the extra three inches. And again, you know, there are some contexts where Dylan Mitchell makes no sense at all. But for the ones where he does make sense, I think he could be very valuable. Absolutely. And I think that they're trying to do that this year with Peyton Watson. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. a guy that you'd have been really, really brave to have in your first round when they drafted him. I think number 30, that was one of Calvin Booth's first picks. But when they lost Bruce Brown in the summer, he came out and said, uh, the league doesn't know, but we've got a bigger, faster, stronger, better defensively, better passing guy ready to come into the team. And I would have been personally a little bit offended if I was Bruce Brown. I've just helped <laughs> you win a championship. I played a really key role. 
but Peyton's a guy that I'm really high on and someone that I think probably feels that sort of same archetype as Dylan Mitchell. Um, let's um, say so the trade deadline shut a couple of hours ago. Let's Groundhog Day this. You're waking up, Nick, and you, you look at your phone and Sacramento actually made a trade today and they made sort of this big blockbuster. We're replacing Harrison Barnes move. What's the name that you look at your phone and Woj or Shams has, has tweeted out? Oh, my God, we've got who? You know, is it like a, is it a Jeremy Grant? Is it a, was it a Kyle Kuzma? Or is there an, uh, is there a guy around the league that you sort of always thought that would be the one if we could get hold of them? Unfortunately, that player was already traded and that player was OG Ananobi. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of talk about Pascal Siakam going to the Kings as well. I thought that was a little bit more smoke than fire, whereas mm-hmm. I think OG is a lot easier to see. I mean, Siakam has enough overlap with Sabonis where it would get awkward at times. And I think that people who are optimistic on that trade, I think were more willing to buy into that working than I might have been. But OG Ananobi would have been the guy. I mean, throwing him into the Harrison Barnes slot, just, man. I mean, Keegan Murray has taken a huge step forward on defense this year, and that, I think, has been vital to the projection of the Kings going forward. But, you know, Keegan is often just thrown on whoever the best player is. Like, he's guarded Steph Curry this year. He's guarded Chet Holmgren this year. He's guarded Victor Wembanyama this year. And having someone like OG Ananobi, who's, he established himself as one of the best defenders in the league for a long time, you know, at the forward slot, having him and Keegan be able to just trade off, like who gets the tougher matchup, like OG, if it's a bigger guy, Keegan, if it's a smaller guy, that sort of thing, you know, with OG's three point shooting with his, you know, ability to be a sort of complimentary offensive player and a game wrecking defensive player. He would have been the guy that mm-hmm. if the Kings had traded for him, that would have absolutely been, that would have lit up my life. But you know, that's that sort of ship, sailed long before the trade deadline in terms of players who were theoretically available at the trade deadline. I think Jeremy Grant would have been the guy for exactly the same reasons that OG Ananobi would have been the guy with Jeremy, a little more offense, a little less defense, you know, slightly less mobility certainly than an OG Ananobi. But, you know, with Jeremy, I think he's been, he's an interesting player to look at because he's someone who has been a 20 point per game scorer in the NBA before, but that wasn't necessarily the best fit for his skill set. If he goes to Sacramento, that's not the kind of player he's going to be, but you know, I think he, you know, just purely in terms of looking at him versus Harrison Barnes, right. It's certainly an upgrade on the glass, which, you know, again, has been a real struggle for the Kings so far this season. And I'm more willing to buy into Jeremy Grant's next three to five years than I am Harrison Barnes's next three to five years. So Jeremy Grant would have been nice. I'm surprised that the Kings were basically completely silent at the trade deadline. Literally all they did was take on Robin Lopez for like cash considerations and then wave him immediately. And I would have expected them to make a bigger move, but I think there's an argument that maybe the reason they didn't make a bigger move is because the easiest, most obvious move to see is one that, you know, they already got beaten to the punch on the OG and Adobe front. Yes, yeah, absolutely. What do you think about Tari Eason? What what were your thoughts on him coming out of LSU? And because he's, if if I were a GM, I'd probably devote an hour of my week to trying to find the next OG Ananobi. 
he's a guy that I look at as sort of, you know, he projects phenomenally in sort of like defensive estimated plus minus. He's an absolute monster on the boards. I think he's definitely less polished than OG on the offensive end, but he's another one that I look at around the league, particularly with the Rockets crowded uh, wing room. My God, that's difficult to say, (laughs) particularly sort of like with the talent that they have coming through at those positions. He's someone that I potentially look at down the line as a really, really nice complimentary for to, to Domas. Tari Eason is fascinating to me and has been for a long time. If I'm remembering correctly, I ended up having him basically exactly where he got drafted on my board. Like I had him right, right around 17, I believe, but that was with a whole lot of movement in both directions. That was like, okay, you know, at one point in the process, I had him in like the early 30s. At one point, at one point, I was considering him maybe as a lottery type guy, right? And you know, that's the kind of thing where with Eason, a lot of what I had sort of been talking about earlier with steals rate stuff of he was someone who got a lot of steals, also got a lot of steals by gambling a lot, and that's the kind of thing where it's fascinating to try and evaluate because a lot of that was what LSU asked him to do, right? Like it wasn't him just completely blowing up the defensive game plan and just recklessly gambling. Like his role was essentially to be a, you know, sort of similar to what LeBron did in Miami during his peak Miami years of, okay, he's sort of the free safety defensively. Like you station him Mm -hmm. vaguely in the, you know, vaguely near the top of the key and just, have him try and shut down every passing lane he sees, have him try and just wreak havoc on that end. And Eason, it's been very interesting to me because it feels like he's sort of continued that mercurial sort of up and down production into the NBA level. But I was not really expecting him to be sort of squeezed out of the rotation in a sense this year in, yeah. you know, I mean, last year he played every game. He started a few times for them and essentially played as many minutes as he has this season. This season, he hasn't started at all. He's missed a bunch of time with a leg injury, which is, you know, its own separate thing, but he's someone who it's interesting in the sense that I feel like even on a game to game basis, there's a lot of variance that you're getting from him. And so you know, some nights he can be someone who turns the tide of a game for you. And some nights he can be someone who turns the tide of a game for you in the opposite direction. Yes. But yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly if he was available at any sort of reasonable price, I think it would have made a lot of sense as a target for the Kings. I think there are a lot of other teams where he would have made a sense as target as well. But that being said, because of his inconsistency, I can understand why some teams might be less in on him than others just because look we need someone who you know if you're going to be a 20 minute a game role player we need someone who we know what we're going to get from them every night rather than okay you could win us the game or you could lose us the game on any given night yes absolutely and i think with houston they're in no rush to make decisions which is good and i think it's good that sacramento didn't rush to make decisions at the deadline either like you look at next year as long as they qualify for the playoffs they're going to be back with their full um, you know, store cupboard of picks essentially, so they can actually plan to go out and you know make the real next big splash instead of being hamstrung in negotiations with the 24 obligation. Um, Nick, we're going to pivot a little bit to the trade deadline, and I just want to keep it on the West after you know, sort of gut reactions. Who do you look at and think, oh god, they're a lot better than they were? That worries me a little bit. 
gut reaction number one pick in that regard is the Dallas Mavericks. I think that them getting PJ Washington for Grant Williams was huge for them. I think PJ makes a lot more sense for them than Grant did. I think they asked Grant to run a lot more of the offense than he was necessarily ready to do capable of doing. And I think with PJ, you know, because he has such a different game, there's not going to be this notion that we're going to try and run the offense through you. Sometimes I think the flip side is anytime you can add a shooter around Luca, that's a plus. And when you add someone, you know, with his size and, you know, ability to sort of fit into multiple different lineup constructions with his shooting ability, I think that really opens up, many avenues for the Dallas offense that have not that have been closed mostly this season. So they're definitely the team that I'm the most worried about coming out of the trade line, uh, coming out of the trade deadline, especially if we're just talking purely about the Western conference. Yes. Yeah. Well, I thought I'd talk about the West because it's sort of more relevant as a Sacramento, you know, sure. and yeah. coverer, et cetera. You know, if everything pans out right, then yeah, maybe you're a little bit worried that the Knicks fortified, you know, with Bogdan Bogdanovic or Bojan Bogdanovic, sorry, and, and Alec Burks. But yeah, I think that Dallas, um, I was a little confused because they were sort of like projecting to be able to trade three picks this summer, sort of like we just spoke about with Sacramento, where it's, ah, you can go out and maybe even get a third star next to Luca and Kyrie. But I think with some of the injuries and the, the ticking clock, Maybe it makes sense. Daniel Gafford, they picked up as well. They've gone mm. from having sort of one and a half serviceable bigs to almost three. And, you know, they can get back to some of the success that they had for the 2022 push with, you know, DFS at the five. I think that PJ could probably play that role in a pinch as well. They're definitely going to be really interesting. In terms of other teams, what were your thoughts on uh, Gordon Haywood going to the Thunder? I mean, I think it's one of those uh, low-risk, high-reward kind of purchases for the Thunder. I mean, in terms of what they gave up, Trey Mann is someone who I was quite high on in his year, but he's been very inconsistent and disappointing. Davis Bertans was essentially just, you know, an anchor of a contract that they moved, and, you know, that's its own sort of thing. Hayward is an interesting one just in the sense that, you know, it's been quite a while now since his sort of all-star all NBA peak, but, you know, he's someone who at this point in his career, you know, with where he's going, he's very overqualified to be an end of the rotation guy. And given the depth that the Thunder have, that's essentially what he's going to be, right? He's going to be a veteran presence on a team with very little in terms of anybody over the age of 30. Right. And that's, (laughs) You know, one of those nebulous things you can't exactly evaluate how important it is, but certainly impactful for a young team that's on the rise to have someone who has, you know, a decent amount of playoff experience, especially, you know, back to the Boston days, back to the Utah days. But yeah, I mean, he's someone who I think, again, you know, the odds of him being a huge player in the Thunder's plans this season or beyond this season, I think is pretty slim. But for what they gave up to get him, you know, if he's someone who gives them two really good games come playoff time, then that's, I think, a win of a trade for them because two really good playoff games is almost certainly more than they were going to get from the combination of, you know, Bertans, Bertans, Preyman, a few second round picks and the draft rights to uh, Vasily Micic, which he may not even come over ever, right? So, sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that, there's... um... 
I, I'd be really happy if I was a Sacramento fan looking at the way that Utah treated the trade deadline. I think there were talks that they were potentially looking at DeJounte Murray and, you know, wow, maybe this team is really trying to make a proper play and push. I think that they're 10th at the moment, around 27 and 26. I don't have it in front of me, but moving Kelly, who's a guy, like I said, I think he's one of the most tradable guys in the league because he'd just go there, go to whatever team and really help out their backup big situation. Um, I would I'd rest easy a little bit as a Sacramento fan. What are your projections for the rest of the year? Do you sort of look and go, if we don't progress, I'm going to be disappointed? Or would you be happy to have sort of a similar outcome to what we saw last year? So there's a, there's a short term and a long term. The short term is the Kings are about to go through one of the most brutal schedule stretches that I've ever seen. Like they okay. have... They have coming up, they have Denver, they have OKC, then All-Star break, then a thankful bit of reprieve. And then after the All-Star break is San Antonio, which, okay, you know, that's that's the one nice looking game on the schedule. But right. yeah, the next the next nine for the Kings is insane. And so if we get to, you know, the last of those games is March 1st against the Timberwolves, right? So if we get to March 1st and the Kings are, you know, still in play in range. I mean, currently they're the seventh seed after a pretty, pretty unacceptable loss last night, honestly, to the Pistons. But yeah, you know, if they're still at seven or eight at the end of that stretch, then, then I'll be happy because again, just absolutely brutal stretch of games coming up for them in the longer term, in terms of sort of what the end of the season looks like, I will not be disappointed if they end up in the same place they did last year because, and you mentioned this at the very top, but last year they were the healthiest team in the league by a very decent margin. And that's not something you can expect to repeat. And sure enough, the Kings had lost more games to player injuries by, I think it was like game 35 or something than they had all of last year. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where I think last year, just purely because they were so healthy, they played slightly above, you know, where their sort of real level was. The flip side of that is, again, the Kings are currently in play-in contention, and I really do not want to see them in that play-in morass by the time we get to the end of the year. So, you know, if after that, you know, god-awful stretch coming up, they can get to a point where they're the five or six seed, even that, even though that's technically a drop off from last year, I'll be perfectly happy with that because, again, a lot of last year was driven by health. That being said, the Kings have had a very frustrating habit this this season of looking very shaky at the times where they need to look the least shaky, and right. you know, part of that was, I mean, they lost a game to Charlotte a few weeks ago where Charlotte was down four of their five starters, right, and. That's not a team that you'd particularly want to lose to on any given night, but especially when they're missing four or five starters, you know, the loss last night to the Pistons, you know, the truly unheralded blowing the 22 point lead to the Suns in the final eight minutes. It's the kind of thing where, you know, even though this team, especially in the last year and a half has given more reason for hope than they did in the decade and a half before it, it's the kind of thing where because they've struggled at some of the worst possible times, given that they have such a rough schedule coming up, I'm a bit concerned, but if they can do decently over that stretch and then, you know, sort of keep the ship afloat and upright over the, you know, 
final 20 games or so after that really brutal stretch and end up, you know, comfortably in the playoffs rather than in the play-in, I'm happy. If they end up in the play-in, I'm very, very concerned because that's the kind of thing where, you know, last night against the Pistons, if that happens, you're out of the playoffs. And I could very easily see a scenario where the Kings end up as the seven and Golden State passes Utah for the 10 and Golden State comes in and wrecks the Kings and everybody goes home extremely upset. So, yeah, that's sort of where I'm at with it. I think long-term you've just sort of got to have a look and you've got to go... Aside from the Thunder and the Pelicans, teams one to nine in the Western Conference are pretty much all in. You know, the Timberwolves don't have many assets, the Nuggets, the Clippers, the Suns. I mean, I I don't know what the Suns are going to have left by sort of 2025. They're going to have um, optioned off all their picks. Like you can have the fourth worst of this swap right, et cetera, by the end, just for a second round pick. You know, the Mavericks have traded a 2027 first today. The Lakers apparently stood pat at this deadline because they might be looking at Donovan Mitchell or Trey Young in the summer. We'll see how far those rumors get. But the Kings to me still seem to be a little bit at the start of their journey in terms of they have the base talent to be a postseason team. But I think they've correctly identified. Let's not go. Let's not go all in on you know Zach Levine, Pascal Siakam this year. Let's just wait. Let's be happy with what we have. Let's be happy with competence. And we can kind of, we can time our run when all these teams are even further in the mud in terms of like, they don't have assets or their aging rosters, etc. I think that the team has actually been run really sensibly over the past 18 months. Um, Nick, anyone that you want to talk about from the draft perspective, we said that we do the big board. I think we only spoke about the top five guys. Anyone that you want to sort of like steer to? Or are we are we sort of happy here? Um, I mean, I, I gave my whole spiels on Duran Holmes and Dylan Mitchell, who are, you know, the two guys. I'm, you know, they're not the next up out of my top five by any stretch of the imagination, but sure, sure. they're certainly the two guys in this draft who I am, I think, A, higher on than consensus, and B, just really enjoy watching them play basketball, you know, for very different reasons. They have two exceptionally different games, um, but, you know, a lot of fun to watch. Um, Rob Dillingham, we sort of touched on a bit. He's someone who I very much did not expect to be as impressed as I have been heading into the season. Right. And all the defensive concerns that I had continue to play. I mean, he's 6'1 and doesn't play much defense and doesn't project to play much defense, but he is, you know, absolute microwave type of scorer. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, especially in this year's draft, which has a lot of question marks. Let's just put it that way. I think I'm actually more comfortable with the five to 25 range in this draft than a lot of people. I think there are going to be some really solid, you know, maybe not superstars, but really solid fifth starter role player types in that group. And I think Rob Dillingham is someone who definitely sort of qualifies for that of, you know, if he ends up having a long career as a successful sixth man, I would not be surprised at all. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, a team that can play well around his weaknesses and play to his strengths, I think will be very happy with getting Rob Dillingham wherever they get him. Um, Someone else who I also, you know, think is worth bringing up in a similar, but also very different vein. Kevin McCuller is someone who we at No Ceilings have been sort of waiting to have the breakout season for a while now. And now he's finally in the middle of it. And now that his shot is something that, you know, 
you're not going to say, oh, he's going to be an elite, elite shooter, but it's something that, you know, seems to settle at like comfortable with like average to below average rather than like, this is a problem. This is a hole in his game that takes Mm -hmm. him from, you know, defense first theoretical shooting wing to genuine three and D fit. And, you know, what, what, with what we were talking about earlier with, you know, being able to adjust to not being the star player for a team, you know, Kevin McCuller is the lead guy for Kansas this year, but the, you know, college career beforehand for him was very much him being a, you know, fourth option type on offense who focused most of his energy on the defensive end of the floor, right? That's an adjustment that it's very easy to see him making as soon as he gets to the NBA level, because guess what? That's what he did his entire college career, essentially before the season. So he's someone who I think is a relatively safe pick in a draft with a whole lot of question marks. So he's someone I think definitely also to pay attention to. And yeah, I think other than that, I mean, Nikola Topic is someone who, he, I've had him in my top seven all year, but he's, I think, moved around that top group more than anyone else. I mean, you know, he's had some really strong moments. You know, his move over to Red Star has been bumpy, I think would be fair to say. You know, him missing time with injury also didn't help in terms of the evaluation process. But ultimately with Topic, he's someone who there aren't many guys who I could see, you know, looking back five years from now being like, wow, he was the clear best player in this class. Why didn't I see it? And mm-hmm. Topic, even though I currently have him at sixth on my board, he's someone who I could very easily see, you know, looking back in a couple of years and being like, okay, the defensive concerns that I had, the concerns that I had about his first step, those were overblown. And what he can do with his playmaking, with his ball handling vision, with his shooting touch, that, you know, was much more important than sort of the flaws that I was maybe slightly too focused on. So he's someone who I, you know, have outside of that top five group that we've talked about quite a bit today, but is definitely someone who, if he ends up in my top five by the end of the season, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up being the best player in this draft class. I wouldn't be surprised either. Yeah. The thing that stood out to me about toe pitch really is just sort of the mentality. I think when he was at mega, it's really hard to overestimate how difficult it is to be a number one option on a European team as an 18 year old. And if you just look at sort of the consistency of his box scores, for one, regardless of whether he had the shot going from behind the arc or whether it was sort of getting to the free throw line or lighting it up from two point range, there was a remarkable consistency in his numbers. He was good for sort of a minimum of 12 to 20 points per night. He was getting his assists as well. And I think that someone that can sort of take those knocks early in their career, I'd have faith in them adjusting to uh, sort of coming over and playing in the NBA because it's not linear progression that you're going to make once you come into the toughest league in the world. And I think someone that's shown that by hook or by crook, they're going to contribute to their team. That's something that I would always sort of value quite highly. And he certainly doesn't lack the confidence either. I think it would have been very easy to stay at mega for the year, perhaps not compete at as high a level as he will be with Red Star, particularly if they go on a Euro league run. He's someone that I'm really keenly following this year. Um, just to point eyes back to the big board, guys, it's phenomenal. There's you know, fantastic writing about most, if not all, of these guys on no ceilings. There's a really fun stretch from 14 to 18 on the no ceilings big board where you've got Kevin McCullough, like Nick mentioned. Then you go to Tyler Smith, who's been one of the bright spots for the G League Ignite program this year. Ryan Dunn, who's one of my favorite prospects in the class, sort of 
another guy that we could have spoken about next to Demontes Sabonis, but I think maybe the shooting concerns are a little bit too grave there. Uh, Tijane Salone as well, sort of your less polished Zachary uh, Rissachet to, you know, really sort of dub it down to a sentence. And Johnny Furphy is another guy at um, 18 who's sort of flown up big boards recently and I think has really started to show some stuff for Kansas. So, guys, I think we're going to wrap it up there. I hope that you've enjoyed trade deadline day. It wasn't quite as blockbuster as it has been in past years, but um, I certainly enjoyed it. I think that we'll probably speak about it a little bit later on uh, next week in terms of the impact that it's going to have on the league. But I love talking draft with no ceilings, guys. I love talking hoops with no ceilings, guys. As I said at the top, we've had Tyler on before, we've had Stephen, and now we've had Nick. And Nick, I've had a ton of fun talking to you today, man, about this might be the broadest show I've ever done. Sometimes I listen to sort of like thinking basketball episodes and you think, God, they it's titled, you know, top 25 under 25 and they've spent 20 minutes talking about Paul Pressey. I feel like we've really sort of jumped around today. So it's lovely to speak to a guy that's knowledgeable enough to do that and, and make a really good podcast. Well, thank you so much for saying that. That's a whole lot kinder than saying Nick rambled all over the place and we went to 17 no. different topics because he rambled. <laughs> So I appreciate that. <laughs> Nick, what have you got coming up? Obviously, the big board recently. I think there's been a piece about St. Thomas's go on no ceilings today. What's in the uh, what's in the pipeline for you over the next couple of weeks? Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, the uh, big board for no ceilings uh, version four came out yesterday. We will have our next mock draft available next week. We'll probably be going up on Wednesday. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Um, I had a piece go up on Tuesday. It was my second edition of my editor's notes piece, just sort of covering five players who we haven't written about as much at No Ceilings. I may or may not be doing another one of those next Thursday. So um, mm -hmm. definitely if you're looking out for my stuff, be on the lookout for that. But yeah, just generally follow No Ceilings at No Ceilings NBA on social media, No Ceilings TV on YouTube, No Ceilings NBA podcast. We're doing a ton of great work around the NBA draft and you know, it's always a draft time of the year for us at No Ceilings, but it's really starting to sort of ramp up now as we're getting closer to March Madness. And as some NBA teams are starting to become more and more aware of sort of where their draft position is going to be, there's a lot more focus that will be going into the draft going forward sort of in the NBA world generally. But we at No Ceilings are all NBA draft all the time year round. So if you're looking for any draft coverage, be sure to check us out at NoCeilingsNBA.com. Absolutely. All links are going to be in the description down below to Nick's Twitter, to Kings Weekly as well, which is another great podcast if you ever want to check in on Sacramento. But no ceilings, guys, are absolutely great. I'm going to beg them to come back on, you know, for many, many years, as long as I keep doing the podcast. So thank you, Nick, for coming on. And guys, thank you for listening. If you've got this far, uh, really hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please like, share, rate, engage with us on Twitter. Tell us it was great. If we get one person, I'll be really happy, even if it's my mum. But uh, mm -hmm. we'll be back same time sort of next week. More exciting guests. Thanks for listening. Cheers.